I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. Coming up, to celebrate Thanksgiving week, we dig into the How on Earth archives in search of tasty morsels of science. For today's show, we have a mix of current news and ghosts of Thanksgiving past from the How on Earth archives. So first, we begin a look at some recent news in science. The cinnamon and cloves of pumpkin pie, the rich aroma of roast turkey, tangy cranberries, and buttered mashed potatoes. These are smells of thanksgiving. Sadly, around 60% of people who have recently recovered from COVID will have a hard time enjoying these wonderful aromas, and long COVID sufferers sometimes lose their sense of smell for months or even years. Now, researchers have a clue about what might solve this non-smelling problem. It involves a 10-minute outpatient procedure called the stellate ganglion block. To understand the stellate ganglion block, let's start with your anatomy. The stellate ganglia are nerves that run along each side of the neck. The stellate ganglia are known to regulate our heart rate, blood pressure, breathing rate, and digestion. When the stellate ganglion nerves get inflamed, they can contribute to conditions such as cluster headaches, phantom limb pain, dizziness, and irregular heartbeats. Conversely, when scientists have blocked stellate ganglion signals for a very short while, in some cases, these troublesome symptoms have gotten reset, meaning fewer cluster headaches, no more phantom limbs, and so on. One theory about why this procedure might work is that blocking the stellate ganglion might be letting inflamed nerves cool off, rest, and reset, and work like normal once again. Hoping to help long COVID sufferers have normal smelling once again, researchers at Jefferson Health in Philadelphia decided to try a stellate ganglion block. First, they enrolled about five dozen COVID sufferers who had lost their sense of smell for at least six months. Next, the researchers inserted a needle into the precise brain area that's a central part of the stellate ganglion. With that needle in place, they injected a tiny dose of steroids and anesthesia. In other words, they did a stellate ganglion block. Over half the research subjects have reported at least some return of the sense of smell, and sometimes a full recovery. This research points to the importance of strategies that reduce nerve inflammation after COVID. But it also might lead to a specific solution so that in the years ahead, people who have lost their sense of smell will once again be able to breathe in pumpkin pie spice, the sage and rosemary and buttery smells in mom's favorite casserole, 
and all the other wonderful aromas of thanksgiving. And, as if the idea of those delicious smells doesn't make you happy enough, from the archives, here's a How on Earth Thanksgiving headline from 2015 that we hope will make you happy. Well, with Thanksgiving coming up in a couple days, many people take the time to contemplate what makes them happy. We humans, at least since Aristotle, have contemplated what happiness is and how to achieve it. We try exercising, meditating, scouring self-help books, boosting our sex lives, etc. But do we really know what happiness is? Well, a team of researchers at Kyoto University in Japan claim they have found the answer, at least from a neurological perspective. Happiness, according to the study, is a combination of happy emotions and satisfaction of life coming together in the precuneus. That's a region in the brain that becomes active when experiencing consciousness. People feel emotions in different ways. For instance, some people feel happiness more intensely than others when they receive compliments. Physiologists have found that emotional factors like these and life satisfaction together constitute the subjective experience of being happy. But the neural mechanism behind how happiness emerges have remained unclear. Understanding that mechanism, according to the researchers, will help scientists subjectively quantify levels of happiness. To find out more about this mechanism, the team scanned the brains of research participants with MRI and then gave them a survey. The participants were asked how happy they generally are, how intensely they feel emotions, and how satisfied they are with their lives. Those who scored higher on the happiness surveys had more gray matter mass in the precuneus. In other words, people who feel happiness more intensely feel sadness less intensely and are more able to find meaning in life have a larger precuneus. Some previous studies have shown that meditation increases gray matter mass in the precuneus. Dr. Sato said that his study offers new insights on where happiness happens in the brain and will be useful for developing happiness programs based on scientific research. So to all our listeners, may you have a happy Thanksgiving and a well-fed precuneus. Next, we have two encore features about wild turkeys. One feature from 2011 and another from 2021. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Beth Bartell. In honor of Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about the turkeys who will probably not end up on your dinner plate this Thursday, the wild turkey. If you think wild turkeys are just like the domestic ones we see waddling alongside roads, you're wrong. Here to tell us more about wild turkeys in North America is Stan Baker, regional wildlife biologist for the National Wild Turkey Foundation, which is actually one of the largest conservation organizations in the U.S., Stan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we talked a little bit yesterday, and um, 
and you have some interesting stories to tell. I was wondering if you could start out by telling us about the story of wild turkeys in North America. Yes, uh, at the time, uh, of course, uh, this time of the year, Thanksgiving time, uh, we uh, wild turkeys and turkeys in general are a topic of discussion. Uh, at the time the pilgrims f first came to North America, uh, we estimate there was probably uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10 million wild turkeys in North America. Huh. And what was their, what was their range at that time? Well, their range, uh, there's uh, five different subspecies across uh, North America, and uh, the predominant subspecies is the eastern wild turkey, which uh, uh, its habitat type uh, is closely tied to uh, forests, and uh, they covered about two-thirds of the uh, United States at that time. And then, and then what happened? They didn't, uh, they didn't quite thrive all through the ages. Well, uh, they're, uh, they were put on the dinner plate, if you will, uh, was one of the things. Uh, uh, they were very available for the uh, settlers, and it was a great uh, food source for them, uh, unregulated hunting, as well as they were clearing their, uh, the forests at that time, and so their habitat, a lot of the habitat was lost along with the uh, unregulated hunting. And when, um, when was the low in the turkey population, and how low did it actually get? We think uh, somewhere in the 1920s, 1930s, the population may have dipped to as low as 30,000 total across uh, North America. And uh, as, of, as of recent as 1973, uh, they had climbed to 1.3 million turkeys. And today, we estimate there's uh, more than 7 million wild turkeys across North America. And uh, we like to think of it as the greatest conservation success story of all time. What, um, what was responsible for the, the success of, of bringing turkeys back to North America? Well, probably the greatest thing was the ability to live trap the birds uh, during the winter time, when they congregate, uh, they were able to come into food sources and then a variety of traps. We have walk-in traps, uh, drop nets, rocket nets, and the ability to trap these birds, these wild birds, and then take them to suitable habitat uh, was probably the biggest boon for the uh, overall restoration of the wild turkey. Uh, attempts to pen raise the birds uh, failed. Uh, you just really need the wild turkeys to, uh, with their with their instincts, to be able to uh, pass that on to the, uh, the young poults. And so the hens uh, imprint, as we call it, uh, pass on those instincts and uh, that ability. But pen raised birds just do not develop the uh, wild characteristics and the instincts uh, needed to survive. So you are in Utah, but you're responsible for Utah and Colorado. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the wild turkeys in Colorado, the species we have, and, um, and what their habitat's like? Yes, the, uh, we have two uh, species, two subspecies of wild turkeys in Colorado. And uh, the native or the indigenous uh, 
varieties that were uh, in Colorado uh, were the Merriams. Merriams are closely associated with ponderosa pine and oak brush habitat, uh, commonly found along the Front Range in Colorado, and also uh, a large extent of southern Colorado has this habitat type. Uh, the Rio Grande wild turkey is uh, the other subspecies that's found in Colorado. It's found in the eastern plains along the eastern rivers, such as the South Platte and the Arkansas and some of the other uh, drainages in the east, eastern plains. And they're closely tied to cottonwood trees, uh, bottoms, and uh, adjacent uh, uh, agricultural lands. But uh, turkeys need trees. Uh, they roost in trees at night. Uh, that helps their survival, uh, keeps them free of some danger being able to uh, get up off the ground at night to roost. How can you uh, how can you tell the two apart? Is it easy to tell the two apart? Well, n not really. Uh, both Rio Grandes and Merriams uh, do share a lighter uh, tail feathers, so their coloration. Uh, Rio Grandes tend to have more of a tan. Uh, tail feathers, where uh, Merriam's are uh, somewhat more brighter white tail feathers, but uh, there's different uh, coloration phases of the two, and uh, and they do occasionally uh, overlap, and they will uh, breed, and and uh, so you'll end up with uh, hybrids in some cases, but for the most part, uh, it's their habitat type that uh, is most frequently uh, determined uh, which subspecies, where they're located. So most of us have this idea of uh, the turkey as this fat, waddling, sort of awkward creature. And um, that would be the picture of the domestic wild turkey. Um, you told me some interesting things about um, what wild turkeys are actually like. Could you tell us a bit about how the wild turkeys actually differ from the domestic turkeys? Yes. Wild turkeys, uh, of course, are much leaner, uh, sleeker. Uh, they have a great ability to both run and fly, which most people don't uh, realize. Yeah, how fast? How fast can they run and fly? Well, they can actually uh, they can run up to about 15 miles per hour. Uh, they have very powerful legs, and uh, at any given moment uh, when they're flying, if they or when they're running, if they decide uh, a better option is to fly, they can fly, and they can fly up to between 45 and 55 miles an hour for up to uh, a mile in length. So uh, they're very uh, adaptive, uh, and this, over the years, this instinct uh, of survival and escape from predators has enabled them to develop this uh, very athletic build, if you will, compared to the domestic turkey, which uh, they cannot fly, and they don't run very well. So uh, their uh, domestic turkeys are bred for the dinner table, and... Uh, over the years, uh, wild turkey, it's got incredible eyesight. Its eyesight is up to six times greater than uh, human eyesight. Wow. So all these abilities is, is uh, truly what's uh, kept it wild and, and uh, being able to survive in the wild. Well, Stan, thank you so very much for joining us today. Um, we hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Will you be eating a wild turkey on Thursday? Yeah. 
You know, I will. I have one in the freezer. I'm going to be uh, thawing out, and uh, they are very, uh, they're very good on the dinner table. <laughs> Great. Well, enjoy it, and thank you very much again for joining us. That was Stan Baker of the National Wild Turkey Federation. Many people call Thanksgiving their favorite holiday because it's all about getting together and eating. The holiday centerpiece is often a roasted turkey, that very likely comes from a domesticated flock. But did you know that Boulder County has wild turkeys? Let's listen in as How Owners Shelley Schlender joins naturalists Steve Jones, Scott Sievers, and Ruth Carol Cushman. They're looking for wild turkeys at Longmont's Sandstone Ranch. Come down to Sandstone Ranch out east of Longmont. We're coming down the trail. We have a regular flock of wild turkeys. I believe they have a roost tree somewhere over here on Spring Gulch. Carol, you had wild turkeys at a campsite once. Yeah, we were camping below a roost tree. So at night we watched them fly up to the roost tree. And then I sat on the tailgate of the truck in the morning at dawn watching them fly down. Oh, wait, something's happening over here. Some white-tailed deer jumping through this meadow. They'll do if we don't get turkeys. The interesting thing is that turkeys and white-tailed deer seem to associate with each other a lot. And it might be as eyes for a predator. Turkeys have the best eyes, so maybe the deer like the turkeys to help them be alerted if a large predator should come, a mountain lion or a bobcat. The turkeys could be up ahead. They could appear at any time. What we could do is go over to the eastern hills where the turkeys have been foraging on the restored grassland. That's where I've usually seen the wild turkeys. Wild turkeys were hunted to near extinction, and the numbers in the U.S. plummeted to around 20,000 during the 1930s. But after the reintroduction, they're now, uh, they're over 7 million now. Haven't seen any turkeys yet, but we could start heading back, and maybe the turkeys will run into the turkey flock. It's kind of funny. You'll be just walking along, and you won't suspect it, and you'll turn around, and the flock of turkeys might be right behind you. Yeah, here comes the deer, deer cross. Running. Why are they running? And they've got their white tails up. The white-tailed deer, when they hold that tail up like that with a big banner, they're usually alerting to something. What it might be out here would be a coyote. We just came across a big pile of scat with lots of fur in it. It looks like it's twisted a little. There has been a mountain lion out here. Your dogs don't eat a lot of fur, and there's a ton of fur in this. I mean, I think it could be just a huge coyote. It could be a very big coyote, yes. Or it could be a mountain lion. It's not twisted as much as I'd hope a mountain lion scat would be, but man, that's a big pile. Well, we didn't see any wild turkeys, but we certainly saw lots of other things. We saw deer. We saw the changing of the last remnants of fall into winter. Although we didn't see any wild turkeys, I bet they're here, and I bet they saw us.
And wrapping up with our Thanksgiving theme from the How on Earth archives, here is one more food-related story. This Thursday is Thanksgiving, the holiday of feast. Much of what makes food delicious involves how food smells. Now there's a new way to do it, thanks to German food scientists who have made a flavorful, sustainable discovery involving the pulp of juice berries and a fungus found in pine forests. For more, here's Benita Lee. When you hear the words brown rot fungus, you probably don't think of a gourmet treat. But Wolfaporia cocos, the humble mushroom's Latin name, can produce the taste and flavor of wild strawberries from a pile of fruit pulp. Researchers in Giesen, Germany, just announced this discovery in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. To be honest, we have never been looking for a fungus that produces wild strawberry flavor. That's just what happened. That's Dr. Holger Zorn, professor and director of the Institute of Food Chemistry and Food Biotechnology at Eustis Liebig University. Zorn says they screened over 500 different edible mushrooms, and they did it with the best scientific detector of pleasant flavors around. It's called the human nose. We have a trained panel in my institute, and what we did, we just grew the fungi and sniffed on the plates every day to judge which flavors are pleasant. And believe me, we had many, many disappointing flavors as well. Zorn and fellow researchers go to this effort because they're trying to sniff out sustainable sources of protein and flavorings. Rather than using chemicals to create the wild strawberry flavor, Zorn's team grew the fungi on fruit waste, the pulp, skins, and seeds of European black currants that had been used for juice were the growing medium. Leftovers from industrial food processes like this are called side streams. Typically, they go to the landfill. Being able to harness a side stream to create the intense flavor of the tiny, hard-to-find strawberries is a win for the food industry and for the environment. This could be useful, for example, for flavoring of ice cream or sweets or yogurt. The fungus that produces the wild strawberry smell is not very tasty, Dr. Soren says. No, it was mainly eaten in starving times. Used in Chinese medicine for over 2,000 years, wild Wolfiporia cocos grows in the forest where it feeds off of pine tree roots. In food science, however, it has proven itself valuable for creating many different fruity and floral aromas from other waste products. A study involving carrot peels resulted in an aroma described as, quote, orange, creamy, fruity, and fresh. And one of Zorn's colleagues found that the fungus could remove the, quote, beanie off flavor from soy milk. After identifying a good smell, food scientists identify the chemicals that make up the smell using gas chromatography, a process that usually requires lots of harsh and hard-to-degrade solvents. Dr. Zorn's lab developed a more sustainable method that uses gas chromatography, but without the solvents. And the most important part of detecting which chemicals exactly make the smell? Zorn says it's a PhD student. And the student's nose. The, the carrier gas is split into two parts. One goes to the chemical detector, typically a mass spectrometer, and the other half 
goes to your nose. As a PhD student is sitting there and just sniffing. The background is that our nose is by far the best chemical detector we have for flavor compounds. It's much more sensitive than the most sensitive chemical detector we have. Zorn says that making flavor extracts directly from a fruit can be expensive, especially when it's something hard to come by, like wild strawberries or the exotic vanilla bean. Vanilla beans are the fruit of finicky orchid plants, which must be hand-pollinated. Extreme weather events in recent years have destroyed crop yields in Madagascar, the world's main source of vanilla. Zorn says artificial vanilla smell is expensive when it's natural and cheap when it's made from chemicals. Typically, you have three categories of pricing for flavor compounds. The chemically produced compounds are typically very, very cheap, 5 to $15 per kilogram. Then you have the, the, the other end of the, the scale, the natural flavors directly extracted from plants, like vanillin, for example, which are extremely expensive currently. Uh, currently, the, the natural vanillin coming from a, a vanilla is somehow more expensive than gold. Somewhere in between, you have the pricing for natural flavors derived from biotechnology. They typically uh, are around 1,000 euro per kilogram or even more. Compared with bacteria and yeast, which are more common in bioflavor production, fungi are newcomers. Zorn says it's exciting to trace the chemical pathways used by the fungi and to see what familiar flavors can be discovered. And while it's not yet common on the Thanksgiving table, it may be that fungi-derived flavors and foods may soon be coming to a meal near you. For How on Earth Radio, I'm Benita Lee. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender, Beth Bartell, Benita Lee, and Stacey Johnson. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Carmen Rizzo and John Yeager. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.